0: I'm going to have you turn to two places in the scripture this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 9 and also Luke 5. If you're not already at Luke 5, turn to Luke 5 also. So Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5 for our two places to start. We'll be in other places as well as we move on through the message this morning. Uh, we are in a series that we're calling Ordinary Men, Extraordinary Mission, focused focus on the disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have now covered six of the Lord's 12 disciples. I hope this is becoming clear to you or is overwhelmingly clear to you at this point. That why we chose to call this series what we called it. I hope it's overwhelmingly clear to you as well that each of these men that Jesus Christ chose were ordinary and completely unrefined when he called them. None of them had great education to speak of. All of them were from the country, and most of them were fishermen or farmers. None had any refinement to speak of that would distinguish them from anybody else in the crowd. Jesus Christ passed over the aristocracy. He passed over the cultured, and he chose men who were basically the outcasts of society, or at the very least, the least respected in that society. And I want to say something to you as we start this morning. That is how God has always done things. That's not new. He's always done it that way. God always chooses people and chooses things that no one else would even take a second look at. He chooses those who would be passed over by the society at large. Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 36, God says, exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. God follows that. He exalts them that are low and abases them or puts down those that are high. It has always been God's way to raise up those who are low and put down those who are raised up. And so in choosing the disciples, Jesus Christ avoided the religious crowd. That was not where he went. He ignored the religious elites of that day when he called his followers. Jesus Christ chose men who are men of faith, those who have that quality as the overriding description in their character. It didn't matter where they stood in society. It didn't matter how small or how weak that faith may have been when he called them. What mattered to him as whether or not they had within them the capacity to learn how to follow. If they could learn how to follow, God called them. God calls people who have the ability and the capacity to submit their will to the will of the Father. And if there's that capacity within a person to learn obedience, they are candidates to be Jesus Christ's disciples. And so that uh, truth reveals to us that God chooses people in terms of potential. He chooses people in terms of potential. The people that God selects may not be what they need to be when he calls them. But God looks at what he can make them as he works in them and through them to control, to structure them to what he needs them to be. If I want to be used by God, I must never think how lucky God is to have me or because of my knowledge and my ability and my personality, how beneficial I am to the work of the Lord and the work of the church. Instead, I must have a heart that is trainable and teachable. I must have a heart within me that understands who I am and who God is. (laughs) I got to know those two things. And if those qualities exist inside me, then I am a candidate for discipleship. Now, when I talk about God choosing men from the lowest bottom part of society, we talk about God choosing men who are from the lowest uh, social strata of that day. There was none lower in the Jewish or Roman society than was the tax collector. And the first disciple that we're looking at this morning was exactly that. Matthew was a tax collector. It's likely there was no greater sinner among the men who God chose than was Matthew. Matthew's referred to by two different names in Scripture. In Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 14, he's called Levi, the son of Alphaeus. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 15, he's simply called Matthew. So this same man is given two different names in Scripture. Now, you're aware that Matthew uh, authored the first book of, of the New Testament, the first gospel, the book of Matthew. And so we would assume from that that God would choose a man, if he chose him to author one of these books, uh, he would surely give us a great deal of information about that person. But, in fact, God didn't do that. Very little is said about Matthew in the Gospels. And, therefore, we know very little about his background, who he was, or about his personality. What we do know about him is probably the one thing we wished we didn't know about him. And that, again, is that he was a publican. He was a tax collector. And that last credential that we would, that is the last credential we would expect to see on somebody who Jesus Christ called as a disciple. Never expect to see somebody called from that vocation to become a leader of the church and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tax collectors were the most despised people in Israel. They were hated by everybody who lived in that time. They were truly the lowest class of people in that society. These men were commissioned by the Roman emperor to collect taxes from the people And here's how that system worked under the Roman government. The tax collector would extort money from the people of that day. He would coerce them and badger them and threaten them until they gave what he wanted them to give. No specific amount necessarily. He just knew what he wanted them to cough up, and he worked on them until they did. And then he gave some of that money to the Roman government, and he would keep some of that money for his own personal use. And so the goal for the publican was to get as much money from the citizens as possible, and then he'd use whatever means he needed to to do that because he made more money if he did that. Now, if you're thinking that sounds very much uh, to like the IRS system of today, I think that's the model they've used uh, for the system we're working on now. (laughs) Uh, Very, very similar, I think. The publicans were the least principled, the most immoral, the most despicable, and most despised people of that day. I can't make that any clearer. This was the lowest of the low. (laughs) Matthew was a publican. Matthew was a tax collector, the most unlikely person to ever be called by God to be a disciple, carrying the greatest message the world would ever hear, was a former publican. Now, tell me again how God can't use you. Tell me again how you are unqualified for ministry of any any kind. Tell me again how your past or your personality or your lack of skill disqualifies you from being used by God. Let me hear your story, and then I'll give you Matthew. (laughs) I'll show you Matthew. And we're going to see as we continue on, but I believe Matthew was called for that very reason. I think Matthew was called because he removes any excuse that we might give for how we can't be used by God. Matthew is the answer to every argument that takes that approach. If God can use Matthew, he can truly use anybody. And I'm not just saying that, folks. That's the truth. If he can use this man, he can use anybody. Now, I want you to look at Mark chapter 9 and look at verse 9. Here in Matthew 9, 9, we have the call of Matthew. Matthew 9, 9 says this. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, there it is. That call comes quickly and that call comes unexpectedly. Look at verse 10. And it came to pass, as Matthew sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners uh, came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now go over to the book of Luke and look at Luke chapter 5 and look at verse, again, verse 29. It says in Matthew, uh, Luke rather, uh, five twenty-nine, and Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. So here's what happened. Matthew calls, gets called by God, called by Jesus Christ to be a disciple. And the minute he does that, he gathers a large group of people into his own home. He has this large banquet at his house. He invites all of his tax collector friends, all of his tax collector associates to come with him. And the main point of doing that was so that all those people might meet Jesus Christ. Matthew's first response after meeting Jesus Christ himself was to call all of his friends together and they, so that he, they might meet Jesus Christ too. Matthew had found the Savior. He had found the answer to life. He had found the answer to death. He had found fulfillment and joy and purpose and peace after he met Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that he did was get all his friends together. He wanted them to experience the same fulfillment that he had found. And that's exactly what happens when a person gets saved. Typically, that's exactly what happens. The first thing a person does after they get saved is they want all their friends and all their family and all those who are important to them to discover what they've discovered. They want their friends to be saved like they've just been saved. I love the joy and the enthusiasm of a new believer. I love to see that. I love the passion and the motivation that exists in somebody who has just met Jesus Christ. And it is a shame that so many of us lose that passion as we continue on in our faith. It's a shame that we get so used to our salvation that the joy and the excitement that we felt when we first trusted Jesus Christ seems to fade away as we grow older. It is my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for those who are part of this church that we regain that passion. That we find ourselves back to where we were when we first trusted Jesus Christ to be our Savior. It's at my prayer that we experience Jesus Christ now like we did when we first met Him. Because if that's our attitude, the attitude of Matthew, uh, that at Matthew had, It will make Jesus Christ evident to our world, and it's going to attract other people to him. They need to see you excited about Jesus Christ. That's what your world needs to see. And if they see that, they're going to be intrigued by that. And sooner or later, they're going to want to know what you're all about. They need to see that passion, that excitement in you. Now, look at verse 29 again here of Luke chapter 5. He again invited a notice. He invited there a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. He brings all these publicans together. He has this banquet and all these tax collectors, all these lowlifes, all the scum of society are there in this building with him. Why did he invite them? Because that's who he knew. That was his associates. That's the people he hung with. That's who he had contact with. That was his crowd. So he simply invited those that he spent the most time with. It just happened to be the lowlifes and the scum of society. Now, of course, the religious crowd didn't like that at all. They were quite put off by that. Uh, look at verse 30. But, the scribe, but their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with, and drink with publicans and sinners? Now, I love the Lord's answer in verse 32. Look at what he says. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus Christ says, Do you see that crowd? He says, Do you see those people in that room? That's exactly who I've come to minister to. That's who I came for. Those are the ones that I came to rescue. If you see yourself as too good for salvation, my message is not for you. I don't have a message for you, Jesus Christ says. But if you're aware that you're a sinner, if you are sure that you have no righteousness in yourself, then you're exactly who I've come to talk to. There's an old gospel song that says, I'm so glad that God saves old sinners. I'm thrilled and amazed that he sets them free. But the biggest surprise in redeeming old sinners is that he could save an old sinner like me. (laughs) That's a good thought. That's a great thought. And when I look at the room here with with all these publicans gathered there with Matthew, when I look at that room, I say to myself, that's my crowd. That's where I was. That's who I am. Nothing to recommend myself to anything but a devil's hell. That's who I am. But I am so glad God saves old sinners. (laughs) Praise God for that. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. If I learn nothing else from the life of Matthew, what I learn is that God's salvation is for everybody. Nobody's excluded. Nobody is too low that the God's grace can't reach them. One of my favorite verses is found in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This probably won't surprise you. I love the verse where Paul says, where sin abounded, <laughs> grace did much more abound. No matter how much sin there is, there's always enough grace to, f- to overcome it. No matter how much sin there is, there's always enough grace to overwhelm that sin. God's grace is unlimited. No sin can uh, man God's grace. Praise God for that. What's that say to me? What that says to me is everybody in my world is a candidate for God's salvation. Nobody's off limits. Everybody's a candidate. And that means that I need to be Jesus Christ to everybody in my world. I need to present Jesus Christ to everybody, the prestigious and the pauper, the righteous and the unrighteous. And I do that because all people are candidates for God's marvelous salvation. If you're here this morning or listening by way of Facebook or YouTube and you have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, if you have never accepted the work on the cross that Jesus Christ did for you, let me tell you something, there is no need to wait. No need to wait. He died for you, and you are a candidate for God's salvation, and you can be saved today. Amen. In a few moments, we're going to give you the opportunity to do that if you want to. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 9 again, if you would. Go back to Matthew chapter 9, and look at verse 9 again. Matthew 9, 9 says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the seat of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. (laughs) Now, do you see there's no time gap there? There's no lapse of time there. He didn't go home and think about it for a while. Here was Matthew's response to Jesus Christ's call. Jesus Christ says, follow me. And Matthew immediately follows Jesus Christ. Without hesitation, it was irreversible decision that he made. He left all and followed Jesus Christ. He got up and followed. Now, this is going to sound very unpastor-like to you, but I want to tell you a biblical truth. There are some things we should not waste our time praying about. (laughs) There are some things we should not waste our time praying about. There are some decisions that need no prayer whatsoever. There are situations that God will bring into your life where the response is so obvious that all that is required is action. Matthew didn't say, "Okay, Lord, let me pray about this for a couple of weeks and then I'll see if I want to follow you or not. Not at all. He said, follow me. And Matthew followed him. (laughs) Because he knew that was the right thing to do. There was no question about it. Jesus Christ calls. When Jesus Christ gives us an opportunity, when Jesus Christ says, follow me into wherever he's taking you, there is no reason at all for hesitation. We can never lose when we follow where Jesus Christ calls us to go. If Jesus Christ is calling you somewhere, you don't need to pray about that thing. Just go. Just go. That's all he's asking. Just follow me. When Jesus Christ says, follow, no reason to hesitate because you can't lose following him. You can never make a mistake by being obedient to the call of God. Never make a mistake. And so there are times when we must respond simply as Matthew responded. We must simply follow when Jesus Christ says, come, we just go. When Jesus Christ says, go, we go where he wants us to go. When Jesus Christ says, witness to that neighbor or that server or that coworker, there's no need to pray about that, folks. Just do it. Just do it. There's no reason at all to check to see if that's God's will. When God makes a clear command to you about an obvious situation, don't confuse things by praying about it. (laughs) Just do what he's called you to do. That is always the right choice to make. Now, what made Matthew respond like he did? Well, I believe we have to read between the lines a little bit here to get that answer. Here's what we know. We know that Matthew was a student of the Old Testament. How do I know that? I know that because if you read through the book of Matthew, you'll find that 99 times he quotes the Old Testament. That's more times than, Matthew, than Mark, Luke, and John did combined. And beyond that, when he quotes it, he quotes every part of the Old Testament. He quotes the law. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes the major and minor prophets. He was acquainted with every section of the Old Testament. So he believed in God. He understood the promises God made regarding the kingdom and regarding the Messiah. So we would guess as he gathered taxes and as he heard people talk, uh, the name of the Lord Lord Jesus would come up quite a bit. And he would hear of the messages that Jesus Christ gave. He would hear of the miracles that Jesus Christ performed. And when he met Jesus Christ and when he heard that call, everything that he knew, everything that he had heard, all came together. And his searching of the scripture resulted in him meeting the Savior for himself. And the only logical response in Matthew's mind was to follow this one who had called him. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. I love this verse. This is a promise from God. Here's what he says. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. God says, if you'll seek for me, you'll find me. I won't hide myself from you. I'm not going to uh, veil myself in some way. If you're seeking for me with all your heart, I'm going to show myself to you. And that's exactly what happened in Matthew's life. And that promise applies whether a person is saved or lost. Matthew crossed paths with Jesus Christ because he had spent most of his time up to that point seeking Jesus Christ. Now, he may not have known that. He might not have known who or what he was seeking for, but that's who he was seeking for. He was looking for his Savior. And he found in that day, he was looking for that person that would answer the questions of his heart. And God was the one to do that. And so God honored his request by arranging a confrontation with Jesus Christ. And the promise of of Jeremiah is that that will happen to anybody who sincerely seeks the truth, who is sincerely seeking the answers to the questions of their heart. Uh, Here's the truth, folks. God is not obligated to reveal himself to the skeptic. If there's that person out there who's looking for information just so they can refute it and argue with it, God does not obligate himself to reveal himself to them. But for any soul who truly wants the truth that God reveals and who sincerely and consistently will seek for that truth, God takes upon himself the responsibility of revealing himself to them. God takes that on. And by the way, you may be the answer to that person's search. God may call you to be the one to reveal Jesus Christ to that person. We talked a few weeks ago. We talked about Philip. Philip's out there conducting a great revival. And in the middle of that revival, God says, I've got a man out there searching. And so, Philip, I'm going to take you out of this revival, and I'm going to dump you over here in the desert. I'm going to stick you out there, and you're going to find a guy in a chariot, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. Here's what I want you to do, Philip. I want you to tell him about me. And Philip did, and that's the first Gentile that came to Jesus Christ. You know what Philip was? Philip was the answer to that fellow search. God knew he had a faithful man in Philip, who if he took him there, Philip would reveal Jesus Christ to him. And so God took him and put him there, and that's exactly what Philip did. Folks, there is no greater thing for a believer to be than to be chosen by God to give out the truth to some sincere seeker. You could ask for a better opportunity. There's nothing on earth that's any better than that. Now, you may be struggling with a situation yourself, and you may have no answers for it. It may just keep coming and coming, and there's no answer. If you ever find yourself there, please look at the promise of Jeremiah and realize that promise applies to you. Seek the Lord. Seek his heart. Seek his hand. Seek his truth. If you're struggling with something, just seek him. Lord, I don't get it. I need you to reveal it to me and just stay with it. And I'm going to tell you something. God has to answer that promise because he said he would. (laughs) If he's God, he's got to do it. He obligates himself to give you the answers that you're seeking. Now, it may not be the answer you expect. Make sure that's clear. It may not be the answer you expect, but God has an answer for you. If you seek him out, he'll provide that to you. Matthew is our example of that. Matthew is a man who came from the lowest strata of life, but he was a man who was sincerely seeking God's truth. And God honored his search by changing him and making him a disciple. And God will do that for you. God will do that for anybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've been into or where you've been or where you are now. God can do that and will do that for you. Listen to me. Do you doubt the possibility that God can use anybody? (laughs) Just look at Matthew. If you think you've gone too far and God can't use you, just look at Matthew. Matthew was as far down as it possibly went. And God used Matthew. Praise God, if God can use Matthew, God can use you. He can use you. If you're willing to be used, God can use you. So, Matthew is a great testimony to us of who God can use. Now, I want to shift, if I could, and look at one other disciple before we close this morning, and that is a disciple who had other issues of his own, that disciple by the name of Thomas. Now, when I say the name Thomas, what is the first word that comes to your mind? Doubter. You know it exactly. The first word that comes to our mind when we think of Thomas, especially as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is that word, doubter. If you know Thomas's life, that's exactly what he is presented to be. When we think of Thomas, we think of doubting Thomas. Now, I'm going to show you, I believe, from the Word of God in a few moments, that label has been placed upon Thomas probably unfairly. I want you to see that in just a few moments. But at that time, the event recorded for us in the book of John that demonstrates Thomas's lack of faith gives us also a glimpse into his personality. In modern language, we would not call Thomas a doubter. We would call Thomas a pessimist, a pessimist. Now, this was a fellow who always saw the glass half empty rather than half full. You know anybody like that? Don't point. You know anybody like that? (laughs) There's a few folks out there like that, aren't there? Huh? That's Thomas. As you read the brief accounts of his activity in Scripture, we find him to be a man who had a tendency to worry. And I can identify with Thomas. (laughs) Much of the time, he seemed to have a negative outlook on life and seemed to brood and be anxious much of the time. He seemed to be the guy who always expected the worst, who always saw the negative in whatever was going on. When I think of Thomas, I think of that little character in the Winnie the Pooh stories. Remember Eeyore, <laughs> that little donkey? The little donkey had that little cloud over his head no matter what happened. It was always going to be the bad thing. Something awful was always going to happen. That was just his outlook on life. Well, that's kind of where Thomas is. Thomas is kind of like Eeyore. In Eeyore's mind, nothing good was ever going to happen. It was never going to turn out right. He was convinced that if you just wait long enough, something bad eventually is going to happen. Just wait for it. Well, that's Thomas. Uh, Thomas is the Eeyore in the group of disciples. Thomas is mentioned one time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each time he's mentioned, he's simply listed as one of the apostles. Any information we receive about Thomas comes exclusively from the book of John. And even there, we're not given a great deal of information. We are told in John 11:16 16, that he also has a surname, Didymus. Didymus means twin. So apparently Thomas had a twin brother or a twin sister. We never read anything about that person in Scripture, but apparently that was part of who Thomas was. But the main characteristic of Thomas was simply what I told you. He is able to find the dark lining in any silver cloud. And even though that was the case, in the midst of all of that, uh, there are some qualities that Thomas displayed that were qualities to be admired, qualities we would find helpful uh, to model after as we seek to serve Jesus Christ. So go to John chapter 11 if you would. John chapter 11 is the first time we meet Thomas in the book of John. Now, if you are aware, I'm sure you are, John 11 is all about the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus died and Jesus Christ brought him back from the dead. He was sick, you remember, and so his sisters, Mary and Martha, came to Jesus Christ and called for him to come. But Jesus Christ waited for a while before he got there. He loved this family very much, but verses 5 and 6 tell us that he waited almost two, over two days before he finally came to see Lazarus and his sisters. Now, the disciples had to be pleased that he waited. Uh, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem. They knew what was waiting for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Uh, the rulers were now seeking the life of Jesus Christ and probably the life of his followers as well. However, they also realized that Jesus Christ was determined to go to Jerusalem that he was not going to allow the threats of the Jewish leaders to prevent him from doing the work that God had called him to do. So in spite of the threats, in spite of the real possibility that Jesus Christ could be killed if he returned to that area, he was going to go. And that's when Thomas spoke up. Look at verse 16, John chapter 11, verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Do You hear Eeyore in that? Eeyore just speaking right there. Let us go, because we're going to die anyway. If he's going to die, we might as well die. Let's all go together. Let's just all die together. <laughs> but I want you to look past that for a minute. Don't get caught on the pessimism there. Look past it. What he's saying is, uh, if he wants to die, what, what he could say is, if he wants to die, let him go. If Jesus Christ is so intent on being killed, let him go. I have no desire to die. I'm staying right here. <laughs> He wants to go there and get killed. Let him go and get killed. I'm not going. That would be Eeyore. But that's not what Eeyore is saying. What he's really saying is this. He is saying, I will be a follower no matter what. Jesus Christ was dedicated to his master. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And he would follow Jesus Christ no matter what the consequences might be. Thomas had made his choice. And he was not going to renege on the choice that he made. So he says, rather, uh, let us go that we may die with him. If that's where he's heading, I'm going to follow him wherever he's going. If he's going to die, I'm going to go die with him. I'm going to follow him no matter what. Here is the amazing truth, folks, about Thomas. In spite of his pessimism, Thomas gives us the model of true discipleship. Remarkable. He gives us a model of true discipleship. You see, many choose to follow Jesus Christ as long as there are benefits to it. They follow Jesus Christ and choose to be Jesus to their world around them as long as it's exciting and fresh, as long as there's acclaim and popularity. But when it gets difficult, when the path gets rough, when there may be a price to pay, when it becomes dangerous physically or dangerous to reputation or dangerous to standing, suddenly the followers begin to drop off, start to lose them. They start shedding off. Suddenly the price is too great and the gain is too small. Thomas did not want to live without Jesus Christ. He did not want he wanted to live a life and he did not want to live a life where Jesus Christ was no longer there. He did not want to live a life where he no longer followed Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was going to die, Thomas was going to die with him. That's how dedicated he was. That's the level of commitment, commitment that he had set for himself. And so I want to ask you this morning to answer this question to yourself, as I have all this week. Is that our level of commitment? Is that where we are? Are we willing to follow regardless of the cost? Are we willing to follow even if the consequences for following cost us something that is dearest to us? Whatever that might be. What are the limits of our discipleship? Believer, where have you drawn the line in terms of your discipleship? Where have you said, I'll follow until this happens? Or I'll follow until this occurs. I'll follow as long as it goes this way. But if it goes any other way, I'm not going to cross that line. I'm staying right here. You see, folks, that's not a true follower. That's not a true follower. A true follower is what Thomas did. Thomas says, I will follow even if I'm going to die. He never said at one point in time, I will follow this far, but don't ask me to go any farther. I'll do this, but I won't do any more than this. True disciples never put limits on how far they will follow. True disciples make the choice to follow Jesus Christ no matter where it may lead and no matter what it may cost. And here's what I think, and this is just my own opinion now, so you can disregard it if you choose. I believe the reason that the church is in trouble today and the reason that believers are falling away and giving out the message of Jesus Christ is less important than it used to be. And the reason church attendance is down where it used to be much more is because we have believers who have set limits on their following. They set limits. They've set limits. And we will never get the message out and we will never build a church if we have believers who set limits on just how far they'll follow. Thomas shows us this discipleship is an all or nothing proposition. We either follow or we don't. There's no gray area. You don't follow halfway. You don't follow when it looks good. You follow all the way or you don't follow at all. Thomas was willing to sacrifice all to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And listen to me, believer, please hear me. If you hear nothing else, please hear this. That is the only attitude that will work to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Follow all, forsake all, sacrifice all. The next time we find Thomas is in the book of John again, John chapter 14. Turn there if you would. John chapter 14. So Jesus Christ demands that attitude for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now look at John 14 if you would. We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago when we studied Philip. In the first six verses of this chapter, we have our Lord's great promise that he's preparing a place in heaven for us. Now, as you read that, and no no fault to any of us, as we read that, we get all excited about that. Jesus Christ, he says, is going to leave this earth. He's going up to heaven, preparing a mansion for us. And then he says, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to take you up to that place, and you're going to be with me forever. We get all excited about that, as well we should. You know why we get excited about that? Because we have the advanced revelation of Paul. Uh, Paul wrote after this and told us all about what was going to happen in terms of the rapture. Now, put yourself in the place of the disciples. (laughs) They don't know about Paul's writing. They know nothing about the rapture. All they're hearing here is this. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to go to heaven and prepare a place for you. And they say to themselves, what's happening to us? I mean, he's going to go to heaven. He's going to be up there working for us. That's all well and good. We're still down here. So the disciples are looking at this in a whole different way. They're not excited about this. They're concerned about this. They don't know what's going to happen when Jesus Christ leaves them. It's a very fearful proposition to them. Because this one that they have followed, this one who they sold out for, was leaving them here all alone by themselves. They didn't feel any joy in that like we do. They felt forsaken, and they felt alone, and they felt scared. Well, in that case, who would you expect to speak up? Well, Eeyore, of course. Look at verse 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Thomas says, uh, I'm sure the rest were thinking, Lord, you're leaving us. We don't know where you're going. We don't know where the place is. We don't know how to get to where you're at. We know nothing about this. The pessimism and the rejection and the fear in the voice of Thomas there. And what we've seen from John 11 is that Thomas probably believed it would be a better idea for them all to go together. Let's just all die together. Therefore, there's no separation. We don't have to face life here on earth without the Lord. We can just go there and be with him. What you really hear in Thomas's words is not just his pessimism. What you also hear in his words is his deep love for Jesus Christ. He had no desire whatsoever to be separated from Jesus Christ. He had no desire whatsoever to be left here without Jesus Christ. His love for the Savior was such that he would rather die with him than be separated from him. And I'm going to tell you, folks, that's where true discipleship starts. That is the foundation of true discipleship. True disciples love their Savior so much that they will allow nothing and no one to get in the way of their relationship with the one they've chosen to follow. Nothing Nothing gets in the way. Nothing gets in the way. Nothing gets in the way. (laughs) <laughs> nothing is so important that it would permit to cloud out or interfere with their relationship with that one who has saved them. And we can test the extent and the quality of our discipleship by checking to see what we allow to interfere with our following Jesus Christ. What gets in the way? What do we allow to get in the way? What might we allow to deter us and distract us from walking the path that he set for us? Is there a relationship that might get in the way? Is there an amusement that might interfere? Is there a sin or a habit that we might not allow to come between ourselves and the Savior? Well, I'll tell you this. If there is, I would say to you what you've heard many, many times from this pulpit. If we let anything get in the way of our following Jesus Christ, we may be Christians. We're not disciples. And there's a difference. Not all Christians are disciples. All disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. Not all Christians are followers. According to the model that Thomas sets for us here, a true disciple would rather die than let something get in the way of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And the reason we see fewer and fewer disciples today is because we no longer have that commitment. In this day of liberty, in this day of freedom, which has been uh, termed uh, against that which has been termed legalism, anything goes and everything is okay for a believer to do. There's no holes barred. Everything's all right. I've got freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want. And as a result of that, folks, there is no commitment to any standard whatsoever. No true standard is set. And things which distract us from our discipleship, things which interfere with our truly following him, are simply seen as us exercising our freedom in Jesus Christ. Better be careful about that, folks. Better be careful about that. Here's what I think. And you may disagree. And again, you've been wrong before, I'm sure. There are simply some things in Scripture that are wrong for every believer to do. There are some things in Scripture that are wrong no matter who it is. There are some behaviors in the Word of God that are not gray areas, that are not wrong for some, but not wrong for for some and not wrong for others. There are some things in Scripture that are made clear to us that are always wrong for everybody to do. Whether you're convicted about it or not, the Word of God says it's wrong. And if we do those things, it won't take us to hell. We can't lose our salvation. That's not a possibility. But we will lose our discipleship. We'll never be true followers of Jesus Christ. And there are believers who would rather do those things because discipleship just isn't that important to them. They're getting to heaven and that's enough. Being a follower is just too much. They don't want to do that. So here's the question. Here's the choice. Will I sacrifice anything and everything, whatever I'm required to surrender in order to be a disciple that God called me to be because of my love for him? Or will I choose to hold on to some things in the name of liberty or hold on to some things because I enjoy doing them or because of whatever? I'll do those things and I refuse to give them up no matter what God's word and God's spirit may say to me about them. If I make that choice, folks, I will never be a true disciple. I'll never be a true disciple. You'll be a Christian. You'll get to heaven. You will not be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the choice Thomas made. And the question is, is that my choice today? Is that what I've also chosen to do? The final time we see Thomas is in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. So go there if you would, and we'll see the last time that Thomas shows up in the book of John. Now, this is the event you're all familiar with. This is where Thomas says he must put his fingers in the uh, nail prints of Jesus Christ in order to believe that Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead. Now, Thomas says all that. I want you to see our Lord's response to him after he says that. Verse 27. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into into my side and be not faithless, but believing. Jesus Christ says, Thomas, I know what you needed, so I'm going to give you the opportunity. Take your fingers and poke the prints in my hands and my feet. Take your hand and stick it into my side and be a believer and not faithless. I want you to see what Jesus Christ didn't do. Jesus Christ did not say to Thomas, Thomas, how could you have so little faith? Thomas, how could you not believe? Thomas, how could you have those thoughts? Why would you need to do this? Jesus Christ never said any of that. He never scolded Thomas for doubting. Instead, he gave him the opportunity to do what Thomas needed and really wanted to do, to feel the prints in his hands and feel the nail piercing, or the spear piercing in his side. And even in this, Thomas's motive was, not out of a, was out of a love for his Savior. Remember again, Thomas is Eeyore. He's the pessimist. He always thought the worst. Jesus Christ died. And Thomas thought surely he had just lost his best friend. He never heard of anybody rising from the dead. And he certainly didn't have that concept yet in his brain, even though Jesus Christ had told him about it. And so this one who had had been willing to follow had died and he saw him die. He heard of his death. So when they said Jesus Christ is alive, Thomas says, I'm not getting my hopes up. You can say that all you want to. I'm not going to be disappointed again. I've already heard that he's dead. I can't watch him die a second time. I can't go through all that agony again. And so his nature would not allow him to believe again without some tangible proof. And notice the response given after the proof. Look at verse 28. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. (laughs) You might want to circle that verse. One of the greatest testimonies ever given in all the word of God is right there from the doubter, the Eeyore, John chapter 20 and verse 28, My Lord and my God. (laughs) And from that time forth, Thomas became a preacher who was instrumental in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yeah. You know why you're here this morning? You're here because of men like Thomas. That's why you're here. It's because of men like Thomas that you and I were able to hear the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because of men like him. He got it. And when he got it, he really got it. <laughs> and he became the disciple that God wanted him to be. Eor, a disciple for Jesus Christ. <laughs> Listen to me, believer. If our hearts are right, if our motives are right, if our desires are truly to follow, Jesus Christ will do whatever he needs to do to make you that follower. Now, you may not like it. It may be difficult. It may be painful. But listen to me. If you truly want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if that is your heart's desire, God will do what he needs to do to make you that follower. He knows how you're wired. He will teach you and mold you and develop you to do the work that he has for you to do. We see Thomas, we see in Thomas that discipleship starts in the heart. If Jesus Christ has your heart, he can make us exactly what he wants us to be. We talk a lot here, kid a lot and hear about being older folks and so forth. And some of us have are older than others. Why'd you nudge Steve? Listen to me. Listen to me. Please hear me. You are never too old to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no age limit. Never too young, never too old. The youngest person in this place, if they're saved, can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The oldest person in this place, if they have a dedicated heart, can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. No one is ever excluded by anything to be a disciple. There are no requirements to discipleship whatsoever, except to have a heart that is willing to follow Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Does Jesus Christ have your heart today? Does he have your heart? That's what he wants. If he has your heart, there's nothing stopping you from being the disciple that God has designed you to be. Discipleship begins as we surrender our hearts to his complete and total control. And when we do that, God takes care of all the rest. And you will be amazed at what God will do through you if he has your heart. Let's pray.